This week I was uh, contemplating the word, the word of God in written form to us. <clears throat> and uh, was overwhelmed. This is the uh, 400th anniversary of God's grace to His church among the English-speaking people. King James ascended to the throne from Scotland, the terrible Scottish accent. He was despised by the people of England. He was seen as a foreigner. What did he do to gain favor? But set aside over 50 men to take up seven years worth of work in taking God's Word from Hebrew and Greek and the few passages there in Aramaic and put them in the native tongue of the Isles of Britain. English. 400 years ago, that Word of God delivered to us by the saints of old was put in our native tongue and dedicated to the King of England, King James I. Until recently, that very translation was the most read and bought copy of God's Word. You say, what's so significant about that? It was revised several times in the 1800s, in 1901, in 1946, in 1952. But in 1990, the RSV, the Revised Standard Version, which was the revision of 1952, went out of print. In its place stood the NRV, the New Revised Standard Version. Oh, what's so important about that in the New Revised Standard Version, as some of you know, the, the Word of God was changed. It was made gender neutral. Because common folk don't need to be bothered with the trivial fighting about men and women and their place in the home, in society, and in church. So, the translators took it on themselves in the revised version of 1990 to take out all gender specifics and put in neutral words. What's so significant about that? In 2001, Crossway Publishers introduced to the world again the English Bible in the English Standard Version. It recaptured the words of God given to us in the English language in 1611. The words of William Tyndall, who died in the 1530s, a martyr, because he dared put the Word of God in the common vernacular of the people. And we hold here, because of God's power, we hold here the very Word of God. He has preserved it. He has passed it down to us for 500 years, for 400 years from the giving of the King James Version. Why does that excite me? It should excite you. Why does it excite us? We're not dependent on a pope or a bishop or a priest 
that tell us what God said. We have the Word of God in our homes for us and for our children. When's the last time you picked it up? Flip to its page and listen to the Word of God in your home. Don't, don't ever, don't ever take for granted this Word. This is the Word of God. We place our confidence in this Word. We've built our life on the facts and the story of Jesus given to us in this Word. We have the mind of Christ in written form right here. Don't ever take it for granted. Because the English-speaking people did not have the Word of God at one time. They didn't have it. And you have it. When we open it and we study it, we believe that God speaks. When the man of God stands and preaches, God speaks. This is an awesome privilege. Don't take it for granted. Pick it up this week. Read it this week. Teach your children from it this week. Pray for your wife from it this week. Use this word. It will change you. It will make you more into His image. Ephesians chapter 4. We left off in verse 6 and we pick up in verse 7. We see that the unity of God given to us by Christ through the Spirit is expressed in diversity. And it equals maturity. Unity through diversity equals maturity. That's what Paul's going to tell us in Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. That's his point in one sentence as a title. Unity through diversity equals maturity. And we're not going to get to the maturity part this week. I had to save that for another week. We're going to see, though, the beginnings of talking about the diversity. You see, Paul has hit one drum beat since he started chapter 4, and that is we are one in Christ. We are one by the Spirit. We are brought into unity. We have real unity. Unity is not something which we seek after. Unity is something we possess. We have it. When the world talks about striking up unity, making unity, somehow coming to a peace accord, this is, this is a mistake. This is, this is a failure. We don't need to create unity. We don't need to make peace. Peace has been made. Unity has been realized through the Spirit as a gift from Christ. Christ has given us unity. That's why we see here at Grace Fellowship the awesome desire and dream that God would express that unity here in our, amongst us in the, way, in, in the fact that He brings together people from different tribes and different languages, different skin color, different parts of the nation, different parts of the world, different socioeconomic classes, different educational backgrounds, that He brings those people together here at Grace Fellowship in a local expression so we see and we model for the world the unity that does exist. 
This is not a pipe dream, church. This is a reality. This is a reality. The body of Christ is one. And yet, at verse 7, we see a ginormous turn. See the word but? You have to pay attention to the small words in your Bible. You can't skip them, children. Don't ever skip the conjunctions. Those words that tie thoughts together, that's what a conjunction is. This clause and this clause tied together by a little word, usually like and, yet, but. Sometimes a bigger word like therefore. Okay? Don't, don't ever skip those, children. Don't let your mom and dad skip those. Call their hand on it. Ask good questions like, what does it mean when he says, but? What does that mean, Daddy? Because a lot of times the message is contained. You see, because you could make a mistake. Many have made the mistake of thinking that because of the reality of verses 1 through 6, there is no diversity in the church. There's only uniformity. And so they lose respect for those who don't look just like them, talk just like them, act just like them, have a personality like them, have a spiritual gifting like them. They think, those aren't that important. I'm, I'm the most important in God's church. People like me are most important. I want to seek out a little group of people like me because we're important. Paul doesn't let us think that, does he? Look at verse 7. He says, but, you see it? Shift, but, grace was given to each one of us. According to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, that's the common way of quoting the Old Testament for Paul. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Side thought, in explanation of that quote, because some people were confused probably why he would use such a quote, Psalm 68, 18. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. What we have in the church is unity through diversity which equals to maturity. If we're ever going to be what Christ intends us to be, Christ knows we need a various gifting. A very gifting. Not that one gift is better than another gift, more important than another gift, but that all gifts are equally important, given to the church through Christ in the Spirit, which possesses each of us and brings us together in unity so we can express the different gifts He has given us according to His grace. Unity through diversity equals maturity. That's what He's going to say. That's how it's going to conclude in verse 16. So what are the points? What do we need to see here in this passage? Well, first, I think it's so important that we see that our great unity in Christ is expressed through the diversity of spiritual gifts. But grace was given, truly the gift, but the gift was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. The gift was given, the grace of God was given to us according to the measure of God, of Christ. We have all received the gift of God. In verse 7, at the first part, I think it, the, that Paul is emphasizing that you have all received. If you're in the church, if you're in Christ, if you participate in the unity talked about in verses 1 through 6, you have received 
the gift of God. What is it? Himself. This morning we were talking about the birthright, which Jacob stole from his brother Esau in Genesis. Why did God despise Esau for despising the birthright? Because in despising the birthright, what Esau was saying was, I hate God. That's what he was saying. I hate him. He didn't despise a piece of paper. He didn't despise a tradition that had been passed down from his fathers. He despised the person of God. He counted it worth less than a bowl of porridge. He had not received the grace of God to value his birthright. He hadn't received the grace of God. So it meant nothing to him. What set Jacob apart? He was a good car salesman. Some of you are shopping for cars, you'll get that later. You get on the car lot, oh yeah, I'll give you that if you'll give me this. Right? Why, why did God respect Jacob? Because he horse traded with his brother and stole the gift, which by the way had been promised by God to him prior to that. He didn't have to steal it. God was going to give it to him. No. Why did God love Jacob? He loved Jacob because he chose to grant to him the grace to love God. In Jacob's heart, in the recesses of his heart, God changed Jacob and gave him a heart to love God. He desired the birthright. What it says there, what it means there is he was desiring Christ. He wanted the promise. Esau didn't want it. Jacob wanted it. What's the difference? He received the grace of God. And that's what's the difference between you and your neighbor who doesn't love Christ, who despises the things of God, who hates His Word, who thinks church is boring, who doesn't want to, doesn't want to know Jesus. Don't ever get prideful. That's not you. You're not better than them. You've received the grace, the gift of God. But we receive the grace of God. How is that grace expressed then? That gift expressed? Well, it's expressed through Christ in the gift of the Spirit. It's expressed through Christ in the gift of the Spirit. But grace was given to each one of us according to Christ. Through Christ. By His power. By His will. According to His plan. You are who you are in the body of Christ because Christ made you that. He could have just as easily fashioned you to be another gifting had He wanted that. So when you go lusting after somebody else's strengths, just understand you're calling into question the plan of Jesus Christ. You're saying, well, if I had been Jesus, I would have made me more like Him. Or more like her. I would have been the preacher. Or I would have been the giver. Or I would have been the one who has mercy. Or I would have been the one with an extreme gift of faith. An unction of faith. I would have been the one to speak in tongues. I would have been the one to prophesy. All I am is a, is a hidden part. I'm not that important. I want to be important. That's calling in to question. The person and the work and the plan of Jesus Christ. Just be sure that you know that. Whenever you question why God has made you the way He has made you, 
Just understand, you're calling into question the sovereignty of your Lord. Do you not think he knew what best suited his body? <clears throat> Do you not think he knew what made his bride beautiful? Do you not think he understood what would strengthen and bring each member to maturity? I think he did. Don't you trust him? We need to trust him, don't we? But so often we express lack of trust because we elevate. Sometimes it works like this. It sounds reverse. Instead of lusting after something, some of you are guilty of saying, well, I'm not all that important. Pat me on the back. Tell me I'm important. All I do is serve the body of Christ. That's all I do. I'm not like the preacher. I'm not like the elders. Oh, I'm not like that gifted uh, prophetic speaker. Stroke me. Make me feel good. Tell me it's okay that I'm a servant. That's called pride. What you're doing when you do that, church, is you're expressing the sin of pride. You're begging for a compliment. Be assured Christ has made you the way He wanted you. He has gifted you for the task He seeks you to fulfill. Don't try to lust after or seek after another person's gift, nor should you be begging someone to affirm that you are good at what you do. Jesus has affirmed you. He saved you and He gifted you and placed you in His body to accomplish a specific task. Live in that assurance. So I want to pause and just say, and this is not my, my point here, but I couldn't help in the study but think about our little girls in the congregation. Listen to me, girls. Jesus Christ, the great Creator, has made you just who you are. I speak specifically to girls because this seems to plague little girls. And, by the way, you older ladies can listen in. I'm talking about from the earliest of days, this, this thought that they're not good enough, they never measure up. It's in the heart of a little girl. Listen to me. If you're a believer and you're in Christ, you are who He made you to be. He made you the way He wants you. So don't insult Him. Trust Him. He is wise beyond your understanding. Little boys, same goes for you. But just listen, little girls. Don't value the words of some 16-year-old punk over the word of Jesus Christ. Don't do it. But he gave the gift of God to his church According to the measure of Christ, He made you who He planned you to be. Okay? Accept His Word about you. Believe His Word about you. Live in the power of the Word to you from God. He loves you and He made you according to His grace. And He has gifted you from Christ. It comes from Christ. We see this. In Paul is somewhat of an emphasis in his letters to the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 through 6. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God 
who empowers them all in everyone. Regardless of what you are talented or gifted to do, it is important because God gave it to you. If it wasn't important, He wouldn't have given it to you. So exercise the gift under His power that He has given you and stop lusting after everybody else's gift. That's a particular problem in Corinth. They all wanted to speak in tongues. They all wanted to prophesy. They wanted these public gifts. And Paul rebukes them in this chapter. Furthermore, Jesus promised this gift to His apostles. This gift. What is the gift? I keep telling my gift. What is the gift? It's, it's Himself. It's the Spirit. You have the Spirit. Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8 say, So when they had come together, they asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by His own authority, but you will receive, what? Power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So they're going to receive power by receiving the Spirit. And it is this Spirit which Christ has poured out according to His plan, according to His measure. He's given it to each of us. It expresses itself differently in different people. And I would say at different times it expresses itself within the same person in different ways. Have you ever been in a situation where someone's attacking the Word of God or someone is putting down the name of Christ and you, the normally timid and shy and backburner guy or gal that serves in behind the scenes, all of a sudden the unction to speak just overwhelms you and you just defend the Word or the name of Christ. And when you leave, you get limp, really. and you get, you, you're just, It's just like, whoa, did I do that? That's not me. Has that ever happened to any of you? That happens to me. What's going on? The Spirit of God wells up. He, for the moment, fits you for the task that's at hand. Now, that doesn't mean you need to then surrender to the ministry and become a preacher. He might not fit you each week for that same task. But in that moment, He's capable of giving you whatever is needed for that situation. You who usually tremble in faith and don't, have, don't seem to express much faith, and then you lose your job and your house is foreclosed on and your child is diagnosed with childhood cancer, and all of a sudden, you, this weakling, in appearance, on the outside, well up to faith in God. And people come to you and say, what's happened to you? And your confession should be the grace of God. Christ, by His great grace, has given me a measure that's necessary for this day, for this time. And what's so great about this is, it's not a few talented people who get the Spirit and who get the grace. It's not just the apostles, it's all of the church. Our gifting, the grace we receive, we receive through Christ and the Spirit and the Father. It's a Trinitarian work. And it is expressed as Christ intends it to be in His church. And the goal of it is maturity. We'll get there. I keep throwing that out there because I don't want you to lose sight of where we're going. Second point today, our victory is in Christ. 
who has defeated our enemies and given us the victor's spoil. I know it's a long point. It probably would be better in one word or something. That's not how my mind thinks, though. My mind thinks to rephrase and make simple as best I can that which is very complicated. Never mistake this. This is one of the most complicated passages in the New Testament because it quotes one of the most difficult to understand passages in the Old Testament, Psalm 68, 18. By Thursday of this week, I questioned whether Paul knew what he was doing when he quoted this passage. There surely were better passages than this one came to mind because 68, 18 is in the middle of Psalm 68, and Psalm 68 starts out with the declaration of God's victory, moves to define who God is by His character, moves to talk about God delivering the people of Israel, from Sinai through Deborah, the prophet. In 18, it says, not what you read on this page. It doesn't say that. 68.18 reads exactly this way. You ascended on high. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts from men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. That's not at all what Paul quoted. See what I mean about difficulty? He changes it. The word says in 18 that you, speaking about God, it seems in the text, led a host of captives in your train, received the gifts of men. But in Paul's quoting of it, he says, when he, not you, ascended on high, He led a host of captives, and he gave, not received, gifts from men. What's going on? Did the writer of Psalm make a mistake? Paul wanted to correct? Of course not. Absolutely not. That's an unacceptable understanding. So what is Paul doing? He's explaining chapter 68, verse 18. He's expositing it. All of the changes he makes only make Psalm 68, 18 digestible for his Gentile audience. You've got to remember who his audience. His main audience are Gentiles. They don't have a depth of understanding about the Old Testament that their Jewish brethren hold. In 68, 18, we know that the early Jews saw verse 18 Surprisingly, not about God, but about Moses. Moses ascended on high when he went on Mount Sinai, and he received from God the Ten Commandments, the law of God, and he gave those gifts to Israel when he descended. That's how the Jews would have understood it. So is Paul just taking that understanding and using it? No, not at all. Although there are some who believe that's what he's doing, that's not what he's doing. What is Paul doing? He's explaining the text, not the Jewish understanding of the text. What is the text? What is he teaching? We'll get there. Just stay with me. This is the kind of angst, this is the kind of concern that rises in the heart of a man who studies God's Word. You you leave certain that God has spoken, certain that what He has said is true, 
as certain as can be that you've got it right and praying God makes it known. That's, that's how you leave every week. Weeks like this, even more so. Paul is interpreting for us Psalm 68, 18. The background here is of a conquering king. Psalm 68 says that God is a conquering king. And when kings conquered in the ancient Near East, they led captives back with them from the battlefield and the booty, the spoils of victor with them. And it was symbolized as coming in the train of their robe because the king went first and the captives and then his army and then the captives that he had defeated. Okay? And so they, they followed in the trains of his robe, the king's robe. He was ascending into the city, and he's delivering the spoils of victory to his people. That's what Psalm 68, 18 is saying. God has delivered us from the hand of our enemies and from his enemies, and he has defeated them thoroughly and leads them captive and gives us the victor's spoil. That's what 68, 18 means. What Paul does is takes it from about God in general and specifically makes it about Christ the fulfillment of the promise of 68:18 all we have going on in this text is a man post the cross looking back through the cross to the old testament how many times have i said it read the old testament through the lens of the new testament if not you will make mistakes many many mistakes paul is doing it for us He's looking back through Jesus and saying, Psalm 68 is true because Jesus defeated our enemies and Jesus has made them captive and Jesus has delivered to us the victor's spoil, the gifts from the grace of God that He has administered to the church. That's what He's saying. It's not more complicated than that. That's how simple it can be. We don't have to run off to some strange interpretation. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Well, Paul goes on to make this point. Christ descended. I look at the second part of verse 9 first. Why? Because it's clear to me as to what Paul is saying if we do look at the first, second first. He descended. What does it mean? He was incarnate. He put on flesh. Jesus was in heaven at the right hand of His Father from all eternity. He is the eternal Word of God. He has never not existed. He has always been there. And then, at the appointed time, He stepped down out of that glory and was incarnate. He descended into the earth. Your translation may say the lower parts of the earth. And that troubles me because... Unfortunately, that's led to a lot of misunderstanding. Like people thinking this means Jesus went to Hades. That what Paul's saying is he went into the dwelling of the abode of the dead and he preached the gospel and he led the Old Testament saints out of Hades. I don't think there's any room for that when we look at the full body of the New Testament and Old. When people died believing in Christ, they went to paradise. They went to paradise. They were with God. They were not dwelling in some underworld, netherworld. That, that sounds crazy to you maybe, but that is very popular in the church. Maybe you've believed that coming into the day. I hope to change that. 
Simply put, Christ's descent is when he incarnated, when he put on flesh, when he dwelled among us as a man. That's what's here. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Maybe that text will help us. Paul here says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, he descended in his humiliation. Being born in the likeness of men, he descended in being born like a man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. Jesus experienced hell from the cross. He had no need to go to hell. He was in hell when he hung on the cross between heaven and earth. And having descended in the incarnation and put on the humble flesh of a man, he fulfilled what is said in Psalm 68, 18. He fought the greatest battle ever fought and won. And he has captivated our former captor, Satan and all his minions. He has put them in captivity. And he is now leading in his train, in his procession. He is bringing, as he ascends back up, gifts to men. He has freed us from the captor. He has taken captivity captive in his work on the cross. How did he do his work on the cross? Because he first went into the valley of humiliation so that he might, after descending into humiliation, be ascending into glory. He can't ascend unless he first goes down. You can't go up unless you're down. That's the text. And we see here also that Christ ascended to the right hand of God. Verse 9, in explanation of verse 8, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who has ascended. Where has he ascended to? Far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. In Ephesians, we have a twofold world. The heavens and the earth. It encaptures all things. All things. Spiritual things, like demons and angels and powers and principalities, they are in the heavens. And physical things. The things of man which are on the earth. In Ephesians, we have a two-fold diagram here, okay? Heavens, earth. Where is Christ? Above all those things. Not in physical location, but in rule and dominion. Why? Because he defeated our captor. He defeated sin and death. He defeated hell and all its minions. And he has led them captive now. He has proceeded back to the right hand. He's seated now in that most glorious place at the right hand of the Father. He is enthroned above all things. All things are under his feet. The text in Philippians 2 says, There is a day given when all men and all demons and all creation will say that Jesus is Lord. After being humiliated and descending, he ascended back to the right hand of the Father. And from there, he has delivered to us the spoils of victory. How? He gave us the Spirit. So we have this beautiful picture. Christ in the eternal glory which he shared with his Father. 
at the given time, humiliated himself. He took on flesh without sin, lived a perfect sinless life, suffered hell on the cross, the hell that you should have experienced and I should have experienced. He experienced that. And having experienced that, he then had defeated our greatest enemy, Satan, sin, and death. He led those, those captive. And he gave spoils of victory to his people. When he ascended back 40 days after his resurrection to the right hand of the Father, where he is seated above all heavens and earth, he then poured out his Spirit from on high. He has gifted us. He has graced us with his Spirit. And this has led to the great diversity we see. Paul has said, you have unity. It is through Christ in His Spirit. And we're going to see next week, it's very diverse. It's not, kind of, it's not a little diverse, it's very diverse in gifting. And the reason it is, is that God's intent for the church is that it be mature. They be brought to maturity. So we can summarize here with this statement. We have received the grace of God through Christ for redemption and for living. All of this is for His glory. As I look at this text and the way it's broken out, I'm, I'm reminded of an event, two events in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. As we close, I want to give you these events. The first is the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. I want you to think with me. The people were held captive in Egypt. They were enslaved to this world. They were enslaved to the king of the world. They were enslaved, we might say, they were enslaved, they were in bondage to sin. That's what Egypt represents, is sin in the Bible. What did God do? God came to Egypt, mediating himself through a prophet named Moses. He came. In the flesh, God came. God gave Moses such authority that he could say, Thus says the Lord. No one had ever been allowed to say that. He was the spokesman of God. He was the incarnate flesh God before the king of Pharaoh. When Moses stood in the court of Pharaoh, God stood in the court of Pharaoh. When Pharaoh disobeyed Moses, he was disobeying God. And what happened? Hell came to Egypt. God poured out His wrath on Egypt like never had been seen since the flood. He poured it out specifically on those who were not in keeping with His Word of Exodus 12. Paint your doorpost with blood and stay inside, ready to travel, having eaten the Passover feast, because a, a, a sinless one is given in your place. The message of the Gospel was preached and hell came with it. And the firstborn of Egypt died and the captor let the people of God go free. And who led them? God did. You say, well, Moses did. No, God led them. God led them. And where did they go? They went through the Red Sea. 
where he ultimately defeated the great army of Pharaoh. And they went to Mount Sinai, standing at the foot of Sinai, as the assembly. They received from God the gift of God. What was the gift in Moses' day? The law. The law? A gift? Yes. A gracious gift from a loving father. He said, I love you, and I've taken you to be my possession. You are my possession of all the earth. Now, this is how my character is revealed in you, through keeping of the law. It wasn't a place that they earned salvation. It was, it was because they had salvation. They weren't getting in the family of God. They were in the family of God, and they were receiving the gift of the law. Moses mediated it to them, but on his death, just before his death, what did Moses say? He said, there is a prophet coming from among you that is even greater than me. Believe his word. We fast forward in the history of Israel. That law, that gift was contained, how? In the Ark of the Covenant. There it was. The ark represented the presence of God. The presence of God was placed in the tabernacle in the Holy of Holies where the light of God shone forth to the people. Starting to sound familiar to you? Jesus Christ, the ark represented Christ. He contained the law. And He now was shining the light out to the people from the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. He was calling all people to Him. That ark was then transferred to the temple, which is where we get 6818. They ascended into the temple and placed the gift of God there, which became a, a gift to all of Israel. And then the temple was destroyed, and the ark was lost, and there was hopelessness until one man, Jesus Christ, that prophet promised by Moses came. How did he come? In the flesh. Not the sinful flesh of Moses, but the perfect flesh of Jesus Christ. And he stood before the people and he preached the message of the gospel. He told them to repent and believe. He preached the kingdom. That's what he did. He went to a desert. He faced down his enemy, Satan. He received the gift of the Spirit. He lived his life under the power of the Spirit. From that day forward, if you read the Gospels, you see he's always saying, he did this in the Spirit, he did that in the Spirit, he did this in the Spirit. He contained, he embodied the Spirit of God on the earth. And he kept every word of the law. And he died a righteous man for the unrighteous. He died. End of story? No. God raised him from the dead. End of story? No. He ascended on high. And he who possessed the Spirit fully poured out the Spirit at Pentecost on his people. You have received that which empowered Jesus in every shape, form, and fashion. You have received him. You have received him. You have gotten God in the gospel. And He is empowering you now 
to live. It's not just about redemption. It's about living. And we're going to see that in the text to come. How do we live now? In light of the fact we have this, how do we live? Let's pray. Father, you have spoken the same message time.